Well, good morning once again. Uh, if you've ever played sports, it's amazing what goes through my mind as I'm singing and thinking and preparing my heart and praying to the Lord uh, as I stand and participate with you in all these glorious songs of praise and worship. So I'm down there and I'm thinking, you know, I've experienced this feeling many, many times in my life. As an athlete, uh, it's the feeling that when you have put it all out there and you have won the game, and then you go into the locker room and you celebrate with your teammates and your coach, and, and it's just an exhilarating time, right? We haven't done anything. We have that feeling because Jesus has done it all for us. And so here we come this morning as a church family to focus our attention upon Jesus. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a message today centered on the resurrection. All of it, every single bit of it, centered around the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Every song that we've sung has been centered around the attention of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. You know, it would be a gross understatement for me to say that I really benefited from and enjoyed my time in Bible college. I absolutely loved my four years at Baptist Bible College from 1981 to 1985 under the, the tutelage of seasoned godly professors. Among many other subjects, I had the opportunity to study the Bible, church history, contemporary theological issues, and each and every one of the biblical doctrines. But what made my Bible college experience even more special to me was the people that I met while I was there, many of whom are my dearest friends even today, some 40 years later. One of the friends that I had that I played basketball with, when he was convinced of something, he would state his case, and then he would say, period, case closed, end of discussion. <laughs> In other words, if he believed that he was right, and he had an ironclad case, he would slam the door on any further discussion. Now, husbands, if you try this on your wife, I don't suspect it's going to go so well. But like, like so many of you, I've had countless discussions with people who are skeptical about Jesus, skeptical about who he is. But the exclamation point in all those discussions is that Jesus' tomb is empty. Now what do you got? Jesus' tomb is empty. A couple of weeks back, we were in Illinois. I drove out to the cemetery to visit my parents' grave sites. I do that whenever I go back to Springfield, Illinois. Upon their death, their bodies were placed in a casket. Those caskets were lowered into a vault, and those vaults were lowered into the ground. And while it might sound a bit morbid, their dead bodies are still in the very same place. But what makes Jesus different than them and all of us is his grave is empty 
It's the perfect period, case closed, end of discussion reality. Jesus' tomb is empty. He was bodily resurrected from the dead after his crucifixion, and he is alive today. Every Christian must believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Believing in Jesus means to acknowledge and accept that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, God incarnate. But not just acknowledging or accepting that Jesus exists or that Jesus died in the place of sinners, but but trusting in his atoning sacrifice as the only merit sinful man can have before a holy and righteous God. Belief in Christ presupposes a need for Christ, right? So belief in Christ presupposes a need for Christ, and that means that a Christian must first acknowledge his sinfulness and his desire to repent or turn from his sin and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. But what is often missed when we give the plan of salvation to sinners is that Jesus didn't just die and remain in the grave, he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, one of the essentials of our faith is belief in the resurrection. It's a part of the powerful gospel message that transforms lives. And I want to begin today with the basic tenets of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul spells out for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. This is going to be our starting point, and then we're going to move throughout the scriptures as we celebrate the resurrection today. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached in you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." As we celebrate Resurrection Day, our primary text is going to be Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. So I'd invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And as we come to this this passage, we find the Apostle Paul expressing his heart's desire that the people of Israel would embrace the gospel that we just read. That's what he says in verse 1, right? He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. But he goes on to say that the Jews are not only lacking in knowledge of the way of salvation, but they're intentionally holding on to their failed attempts to perfectly keep the law rather than believing in Jesus, who, verse 4, is the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. This wasn't just an issue with the unbelieving Jews. It is a major issue today in a different sort of way. There's been an almost an across-the-board rejection of truth, objective truth. As we come to the Bible today, we recognize it as truth. God has given us truth. How do we know truth? God has given it to us. Objective truth. 
The problem with the world that we live in is they reject any sort of objective truth. They want to make truth subjective. Truth is universal. Truth has been given to us by God, the creator of the universe, and it is universal. It applies to every person. So the grand rejection of that is that no, truth is personal, they say. Truth is personal. It's what I think truth is. And so we go from the objective truth of God who has given us his word in writing universally to all people to this crazy idea that we can subjectively determine what truth is. This is at the heart of how messed up our world is today. Truth is not determined by us. Truth is determined by God. God is the author of truth. You remember Jesus in John 14 and verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, people are afraid of the truth. And sadly, I think a lot of Christians are afraid to give the truth because of the opposition that they're going to receive when they do it. We must never shrink from the truth. The Bible is true. It is God's word to man, and it applies to everyone indiscriminately, every single person. Our text for this morning, here in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 10, is very clear. (laughs) It's very explicit, we might say. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in response to the unbelieving Jews and to those today who would reject the Bible as true. Romans chapter 10 Verses 8 through 10, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Now, this is a quote, a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 14. He goes on to say, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. We are preaching the truth that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, with the mind, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Notice the repeated use of the words confess and believe here. Confess and believe. God doesn't zap us saved. He doesn't just, boop, you're saved. Boop, you're saved. You're saved. You're saved. No. No. Repeatedly in the, in the gospel accounts, also in the epistles, we find that there are two essential ingredients in salvation. It is confession and belief. Confession and belief. To confess something means to agree or say the same thing as another. It can mean to come clean with the truth. Notice that Paul says that we 
confess with our mouths, and we believe in our hearts. Belief is akin to faith and trust. There's a connection here between our heart and our mouth. Paul goes on to say that believing in the resurrection is essential, essential for every true Christian. You cannot be a Christian, Paul says. You cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection. And so with that in mind, I want to share with you four notable reflections about the resurrection. Four notable reflections about the resurrection, which is vital to our understanding and belief. And without it, we cannot be a Christian. We must believe in the resurrection. So first, the resurrection was predicted by the prophets and by Jesus himself. The resurrection was predicted by the prophets and by Jesus himself. You know, there are at least 104 mentions of the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. It's mentioned nearly everywhere you look. But there are allusions of the resurrection in the Old Testament. And first, we find that the prophets predicted it. For example, Isaiah 53, which I just preached on this past Friday at a Good Friday service at a sister church of ours. Some 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus, we learn in verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 53 that the suffering servant will divide the spoil, will see his offspring, and be satisfied. All of this after his sacrificial death has brought righteousness to many. The only conclusion there is that Jesus must be raised from the dead for all of that to happen. Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 also points to the resurrection. With Israel's inability to bear God's wrath, it's understood that only a risen Messiah can stand in their place and effectually bear the wrath that they deserved. But perhaps the clearest and best known of the Old Testament resurrection prophecies was penned by King David in Psalm 16 and verse 10, which, by the way, was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. A thousand years before the birth of Jesus, King David said this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, Jesus, the coming Messiah, to undergo decay. And so the prophets predicted it. Now second, Jesus himself predicted it. Jesus predicted his own resurrection. So turn with me back to Matthew chapter 17, the first book in the New Testament, the first of the synoptic gospels who are very similar in nature Matthew chapter 17, we find Jesus predicting his own resurrection. Look at verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Go over to Matthew chapter 27, to the right, Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 57. And this is after Jesus' resurrection. Matthew expounds upon it, beginning in verse 57 here in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew. 
when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock, and he rolled a large stone across the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. And now on the next day, the the day after the preparation, the, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again, and therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And so Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the throne. Good luck with that, right? Really? You're going to take a guard, a human guard that God created, and you're going to have him be the one that guards the, the stone, guards the tomb? Pretty impotent Savior, <laughs> right? I mean, if Jesus isn't powerful enough to whip one guy that he created or to make him go to sleep or to turn his head or to roll the stone and almost run over his toes, pretty impotent Savior, pretty impotent God. But we know what happened. We know exactly what happened, that Jesus fulfilled the will of the Father by raising himself from the dead, from the grave. The tomb is empty. And so not only did Jesus predict his own resurrection, Pilate, the chief priest, the Pharisees, they knew about the prediction. And they obviously were concerned that it could happen, or at very least that Jesus' followers would steal his body and say that he was resurrected. And so they went and made the grave as secure as possible. No problem. So first, the resurrection was predicted, but second, the resurrection was prescribed, was prescribed by God the Father. The resurrection was prescribed by God the Father. Perhaps better stated, the resurrection was by God and from God. By God and from God. Notice here in verse 9 of our passage back in Romans chapter 10, that God raised him from the dead. But right before that, we have a clear statement that Jesus is God. The word Lord here in the Greek is the Greek word kurios, which is a title given to God, the Messiah. It's the New Testament Testament equivalent to Yahweh, the Old Testament Hebrew name for God. The resurrection was for God in that It was always a part of his eternal plan of salvation for sinners. And as we considered last week, while Jesus is God, in his incarnation, he voluntarily placed himself in submission to the Father's will. John 6.38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who 
sent me. Have you ever been sent on a mission? I know when I was a kid, my parents would trust me enough, which sometimes paid off, other times not so much, but they'd trust me enough to fulfill a mission. They would say, Dave, we want you to go do this. And so I, most of the time, would take that very seriously, and I would go and I would fulfill the mission. Jesus was all about fulfilling the mission. Jesus was all about the will of the Father. He came to the earth to do not his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. And so first, the resurrection was predicted by the prophets and by Jesus himself. Second, the resurrection was prescribed by God the Father. And now third, the resurrection was pertinent for the world. The resurrection was pertinent for the world. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus' death and resurrection clearly showed the world that he was who he said he was. But it also showed Satan his ultimate power over death and reemphasized the destruction that awaits Satan in the days ahead. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Really appreciated Pastor Flip's class on spiritual warfare. And he spent a lot of time in talking about what we are up against as God's people. Satan is real. The devil is real. Demons are real. They want to thwart the will of God. And there is no doubt that Satan wanted Jesus to die. Satan wanted Jesus to go to the cross. He already knew that that was the plan, but he wanted him to go there, but he certainly didn't want him to rise again. But because he did rise again, Satan's only tactic that he has left is to try and to throw out all these false theories, hoping to deceive as many people as possible. So the resurrection was predicted by the prophets and by Jesus himself. It was prescribed by God. The Father was pertinent for the world, and now it was particularly for Christians. It was particularly for Christians. Here in verses 9 and 10 of our text, we find that for a person to be saved from the wrath of God, which is the penalty for sin, a person must believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Why? Because our faith is not in a dead Savior, but one who is alive. Our our faith lies in a Savior who defeated death. Our faith lies in a Savior who rose triumphantly and victoriously. Our faith lies in a Savior who can provide eternal life because he himself defeated death and is eternal. We started out by reading the tenets of the gospel that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Later in that same chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If Jesus Christ had not been raised, what in the world are we doing here today? What in the world? I've given the last 
25, 30 years of my life to full-time gospel ministry. If Jesus hasn't been raised, that's all for naught. It's all for naught. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is, the devil. The devil is our enemy. He's our enemy. There are three great enemies of the Christian, the New Testament tells us. There's Satan and his demons. It's, there's the world system that Satan is in charge of. And then there's our own flesh. Not much we can do about Satan. Not much we can do about him and the demons. But there's a whole lot we can do about the flesh. We're to walk in the spirit and not walk in the flesh. Right? We're to live out the deeds of the spirit rather than the deeds of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit. What's it look like to be a Christian? I mean, Galatians 5 talks all about what it looks like to have the Spirit of God living in you. What does that produce? When we come to faith in Christ, how is it that we're different now than we were before we came to faith in Christ? That's a legit question for us to ask. Paul was pretty consistent with saying things like, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Well, what's the examination based on? The examination would be based on, are we living as those who have the Spirit of God within us? Are we living out the fruit of the Spirit? Or are we living out the deeds of the flesh? In 1 John the same author that wrote the Gospel of John, says this, look, you're going to struggle with sin. Romans 7 talks about this waging battle between the flesh and the Spirit. John says, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. So he's saying, look, there's an acknowledgement that we're not yet glorified. We'll be glorified one day in heaven. We'll be changed forever in heaven, glorified we will see him and we'll become like him. But that time is not yet. But we have been radically changed from the inside. Is that being borne out in how we live? Do you ever sit in a, in a quiet place and ask yourselves, is my life pleasing God? I can hardly believe that I'm about to turn 60 years old. Where has the time gone? Our son is 34 years old. 33, whatever you are. Where you at? <laughs> you're long gone. Oh, you're in the back. Unbelievable. Some of you older folks would say, where's the time gone? What, what, what are we waiting on? What are we waiting on? Jesus came to the earth to die in our place. He was resurrected from the grave. And he has given us the spirit of God to live within us. And we're living similarly to how we used to live. 
Some of us, decades have passed. Decades and decades have passed. And what are we doing? What in the world are we doing? Is the Lord pleased with our life? Does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Legit questions. Hey, it's okay to beat yourself up a little bit. I do it all the time. (laughs) I'm actually good at it. I beat myself up all the time. What in the world are you doing? Where are your priorities? What's important? Jesus defeated death. And we still have to take on the devil. But you know, I guess I look at it very simplistically. God created Satan. He rebelled against God. But Satan can't do everything he wants to do. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. So God is sovereign over all things, including Satan, including his demons, including this world system. Hey, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Right? I mean, things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I'm a bit surprised at how fast the momentum is as I look at the news. I get sick of looking at the news. It's all bad news. Let's concentrate on the good news. Let's tell people about the good news of the gospel of Christ. We're running out of time. We're in the end times. We're in the last days. Go with me back to Acts chapter 2. This is the passage that John read for us earlier, Acts chapter 2. I love, I love this passage for many reasons, but this is Peter's powerful sermon at Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on the church. Acts chapter 2. In verses 14 through 21, Peter is addressing the crowd. He begins to explain these signs and wonders that they were experiencing. Notice that all that he says crescendos at verse 21 with the proclamation that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Consistent message in the gospel. Consistent message, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then in verses 22 through 36, he spells out the gospel message, and he highlights the resurrection, and in doing so, he draws from David's messianic prophecy in Psalm 16 that I read from earlier. As Peter shares of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with this Jewish crowd who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, the Lord mightily uses the powerful gospel message to pierce their hearts, verse 37. And Peter calls them to repentance, verse 38. Now look over at verse 41. At least 3,000 people trusted in Christ and were baptized on that day, and the church of Jesus Christ is inaugurated. This is the beginning Acts chapter 2 of the church age. Now, if we go back to verse 22, we see the sovereignty of God and the culpability 
of man. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. As we wind things down this morning, as we've considered the importance of the resurrection of Jesus, Peter reminds us of four reasons why it is impossible for death to keep Jesus in the grave. But before I give you those, let me explain this word impossible. It's one, of my mo- it's one of my most favorite words in the New Testament. The word impossible is used in one form or another just 11 times in the New Testament. 10 out of the 11 times impossible is translated in the New Testament. It is the Greek word adunitas, which means impotent or powerless or impossible. So in all of the New Testament verses, that word impossible is mentioned it's, it's the Greek word adunitas, except right here in verse 24. The word Luke uses here, who's the author of the book of Acts, the word that he uses here is not adunitas, but it's ou, O-U, ou. It means no. Ooh is used 317 times in the New Testament, but it's only translated impossible this one time. And why would that be? Because this example stands out among all the rest. You see, this example of the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It's the period case closed into discussion point of view. What is Peter trying to make crystal clear with his listeners? Peter is saying that there is no possibility at all that the grave would hold Jesus. There is no possibility that he would not overcome death. Ooh is the strongest word in the Greek language for what we call an absolute negative. Most of the time in English, our no's are conditional, right? For example, Kathy might ask me if I want to go to the store with her, and I might say, no, I can't. I got too much to do. But if I think about it a little bit, my brain's tired, I might say, well, okay, maybe it'd be good for me to get out and get some fresh air. I remember when our kids were little, and they would always be asking us if they could go and play outside. And Kathy and I might tell them, no, it's too cold, or no, it's, it's too wet. But later, if they're being obnoxious, driving us nuts in the house, hey, go out and get soaked. Go freeze your tail off. You see, ooh, this word for impossible here, it's irreversible. It's irreversible. It's an absolute negative. It was not even remotely possible that Jesus wouldn't rise from the dead. It is impossible. 
absolutely, unequivocally impossible that he wouldn't rise from the dead. This is our God. A grave isn't going to hold him. Death can't keep him there. He rose again. So just in a quick overview fashion here, Peter gives four reasons why it's impossible for death to keep Jesus in the grave. First, as we read earlier in verses 23 and 24, it's part of the predetermined plan of God for Jesus to be resurrected. God's will will happen. God's will will come to pass. Whatever God has predetermined, whatever he has decreed, it will happen in time, in his own time, but it will happen. And so the resurrection was a part of the predetermined plan of God. Second, Peter gives us uh, as to why it was impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave, and it was that the prophecy of his resurrection had to be fulfilled. Again, we covered this earlier in verses 25 to 28. Peter uses Psalm 16 as an example that Jesus' resurrection was foretold to their forefathers long ago. The third reason that we find here why it's impossible is because he was to be exalted to the right hand of God. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both hear and see. So Jesus is in his rightful place, the place of honor at the right hand of the Father. He is high and lifted up, and every knee will one day bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about that. All of the people who say this isn't true, I got my own truth. Yeah, I was born a male, but I'm really a female. No, you're not. You don't determine who you are. God determined who you are. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God, seated at his rightful place. Ephesians 1.20 says, which he brought about in Christ when he, the Father, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The reality is that we can only be raised up because Christ defeated death and he himself was raised up by the Father. We don't determine truth. He determines truth. Colossians 3.1 says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing now? I think that's a legitimate question. The Bible answers it for us. But what's Jesus doing right now? Well, we know, according to the passage we just read, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of exaltation, the place of honor next to God the Father, is God the Son. But we also know, in accordance with John chapter 14, that Jesus is preparing a place for those who have trusted in him, who placed their faith in him, who have believed in him. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? 
Can you imagine what it's going to be like to not only see Jesus, to, but to be like him and to not have all of this stuff that we deal with day in and day out, to not have to deal with it anymore? You have aches and pains? No more aches and pains. You have a disease? No more disease. You're sinning. I'm sinning. We hate it. No more sin. This is what it's going to be like to be in the presence of Jesus. He's preparing a place for us, for all who have placed their faith and trust in Him and in Him alone. He is preparing a glorious and grand place for us. He's seated next to the Father in this place of exaltation. And then finally, in verses 38 and 41, the fourth reason was to show His power over death so that He might offer newness of life to those who believe in Him. Hey, an impotent God, an impotent person, an impotent Savior, isn't really much of a Savior if He Himself couldn't defeat death. But He can offer this grand and glorious resurrection to us because He defeated death. He can offer us newness of life because He defeated death. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Verse 14, verse 17 says in part, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so shall we ever be with the Lord. That passage is such a great passage. So if I do a graveside service, after I've done a funeral, we go all out in a processional out to the gravesite, I will always read 1 Thessalonians 4, and I will share that we do not grieve as those who have no hope right? We have hope. Why? Because Jesus defeated death. He is the great promiser, and he's promised to give eternal life to those who trust in him and in him alone. It is the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that gives us the assurance and certain hope that one day we will be with him forever in eternity. But until that time comes to pass, because of his resurrection, we have the confidence that we serve a risen Savior. He is the one who cares for us. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who hears our prayers. It is our Savior who overcame the power of death, who keeps us secure in his loving arms. He will never leave us nor forsake us. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. A lot of hope. Hey, I can endure all this stuff. <laughs> I can endure it. I know my eternal destiny, destination. 80 years, 90 years at the most. We deal with a lot of stuff. We can endure. Because one day, we'll be with Jesus. Not just for a short visit. We're not going to take a suitcase, pop in, hey, it's great to see you. A week later, we pack the suitcase back up and we head back out. No, this is forever. J.C. Ryle, tremendous writer, said it this way, we have reason to be very thankful that this wonderful truth of our religion is so clearly and fully proved it is a striking circumstance that all of the facts of our Lord's earthly ministry, none are so 
incontrovertibly established as the fact that he rose again. He rose again. The, the tomb is empty, period. Case closed. End of discussion. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, how is it that we can in any way try to even verbalize what it is that you've done for us? It's tough. We're to worship you with our lips for sure, but we're to worship you with our lives. And so the challenge today is, how are we going to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? How are we going to live? We need your help for sure. You've empowered us with your spirit to live this life in accordance with your truth, which you've given to us clearly. But we stumble. It makes us angry at times how weak we can be. And yet we can always turn to you. One of the great promises that we hold on to in your word 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is your formula because you know we're going to mess up. But if we confess our sins, you wipe the slate clean every time. And Lord, we look forward to that day that we see Jesus, that we're in His presence can only imagine what that's going to be like. We're going to fall down on our knees and confess Him as Lord. Lord, I would pray today. It's a special day. Today we celebrate Your resurrection, but it's also a sobering day for those who have never turned to Jesus Christ in repentance from sin and faith trust, belief in who Jesus is and what He accomplished on the cross of Calvary, dying in the place of sinners, redeeming all who would believe in Him. So Lord, I want to pray today first for those who need Christ that they would turn to Jesus today. But second, I want to pray for the rest of us who You have blessed beyond measure. You have saved us from our sin, and we need your help to live our lives in a way that would bring honor and glory to you and your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the risen Savior, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen.